Thank you. <clears throat> so, we, you're live. <laughs> Good thing you had to take that to the bathroom, Dominic. But anyway, uh, been there before, sir. So, hey, um, I want you to know that uh, before I bring Dominic up, I just want you to know that this man is the real deal. Um, he's somebody who uh, I have known of for a while and got to know of recently in a, in a, in a great way. Like I said, he, he spoke in Zurich, Switzerland last Sunday um, and to uh, a lot of um, folks in the persecuted church. He's, um, he's been around the world. This is his passion. He's going to tell you how he got involved in it. It wasn't something he planned. But if anybody ever gets up here and grabs this microphone, I can assure you, um, we believe in them and their message. Not to say they're any different than anyone else, but he has a message that God has for us. You know, if I had mentioned the, if you had mentioned to me the persecuted church a year ago, my mind would have gone to stories like, well, I'm sure there's some things that happened in India, and I heard about Mali, and well, there was you know an Indian church that was attacked, or Sri Lanka, what happened with the Easter massacre, those kind of things. But having just returned from this conference, <clears throat> this small international conference, where we met with program directors from all over the world who are part of the Swiss agency, this is just one agency, that go into places and territories like North Korea and Iran and Syria. When the bombings occur that they don't leave, they just simply aid the churches even more and the churches hunker down and know what it means to minister. And so it totally has transformed my thinking, and I've been around the world, I've counted one time a bunch of countries, and a lot of them serving in capacities to help and guide and assist. But it was, it was interesting that you get a focus, and you get a perspective when you start studying what it means to come alongside the persecuted church. Now, I'm not trying to steal your thunder, but, I, but, I, but I'm telling you, the last service that, that Dominic spoke at in here, the nine o'clock service... There is an amazing uh, sense within ourselves that we have missed the boat in a big way. The message about the persecuted church isn't just to help them. It's they are being persecuted in order to help us. It's a remarkable thing. Some of the verses he is going to show you and open up with you today are going to be remarkable. I pray that it, it, it peels a layer of the onion back a little bit more in your mindscape of what come alongside the persecuted church means. And so our goal here, Dominic, is to bring about a church that comes alongside other churches. That one day someone will walk into Tampa and they will ask this question, how many churches are in Tampa? They're able to say one. It's the church of the Lord. It's the church of Jesus. And it's the church that we all adhere to in the same way there's another one a few blocks away and a couple of miles away and on. And that means breaking down our barriers and our mindset in this town, and it means breaking those barriers as well in the world. And so, Dominic and Debbie, if I could, if I could introduce you to our church. Um, hope you feel like you've walked into a living room of some of the most real and amazing and genuine people you will ever come across. And I hope as you speak today, you will feel a safety and a comfort in speaking to brothers and sisters, some you've never met until this morning. And so, will you all give me a, give a big welcome to Dominic's food out here? Good morning, and thank you. I do feel like I'm in a living room, and, and, that, and that's a compliment. I feel like 
I've received your peace, the peace that you've received from Jesus. And so I do feel free to come in here and share freely the message that the Lord has given me. And um, I, as, as Jake said, I wrote a book called Heirloom Love, and I am fortunate I get to travel around the U.S. and across the world uh, talking about the book, talking about what's happening to the suffering body of Christ around the world. And that's a real privilege. But I'm from Tampa. I grew up here. I spent most of my life here. I actually, in the last two years, we moved just outside of Orlando. But in my heart, this is home. And, and I know many of you from my years here in Tampa. So all the more, I'm just really grateful to be with you here this morning. And it's absolutely a miracle that I get to talk to you this morning about love. Uh, it's a miracle for a couple of reasons. One is, I was almost 30 years old and had never gone to church and had never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and um, by the time I was 30 years old, my life was a train wreck. I had spent 30 years of my life looking for love in, in all the wrong places. I was 30 years old and I was a daily prisoner to drugs, to alcohol. I was involved in crime. I had been working as a, a, a bartender and a, a bouncer at a bar. And, and perhaps my greatest crime was I had so little love in my own life that I was a deadbeat dad. And, and then somebody told me the good news. Somebody told me that God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. And by the grace of God, I believed it. And although I didn't understand it at the time, I started weeping uncontrollably. Looking back now, I know it's because I had spent 30 years hungering, longing for that love. And as soon as they told me that, it was just a miracle that I believed it and God saved me. The other part of the miracle, though, of what makes it a miracle that I'm here with you today is, I'm, I'm sorry to say that as a new Christian, I was on fire for God. I was reading His Word. I was zealous to obey it. But then something changed in my life. And God put a call on my life that brings me here to you today, but I kind of did like Jonah, and I tried to run away from God. And... It's, it's a miracle that I'm alive and I'm here with you today. And the way that happened was, as a new Christian, I was reading Jesus' final instructions to us. That was the night before he was crucified, and that's when he said, love one another just as I loved you. And he said it not once, twice, three, or four times that night. It haunted me that he said, love one another five times. It's as if he were saying to me, but also to you and to us, if you don't do anything else, make sure that you love one another. And as a new Christian and so thankful for his love for me, that I made a vow that I would use my income to help others. But little did I know that just a couple months later, the Lord was going to bless me with some friends right here in Tampa. And we start a software company. And the Lord gave us the right product at the right time. And within two years, our company went public on NASDAQ. And money changed my heart. I conveniently forgot about my vow. 
oh, I, I, I gave 10% to our church and I gave 10% to charity. Not because I was a really great guy. Looking back, I see that I was just trying to silence the voices in my head of those people who I turned my back on. One of the first things, I was going to say we did, but I better correct that, or my wife, Debbie. By the way, one of the blessings of being here in Tampa is to get to have my wife with me, Debbie. She's advancing the slides in the back, and my daughter, Alicia, and her boyfriend, Alton. And so, just a, it's great being with you. But anyway, I'm sorry, that was not in the script. So, um, where was I? Oh, yeah, one of the first things that I did was I built this large waterfront house that was five times larger than the house we were living in when I made the vow. And I say that sadly, and Debbie, she didn't want that house, and I didn't listen to her and did it anyway. That was the second biggest mistake I ever made. Men, please, you give an amen now before you get an elbow. And, and, and so, but anyway... We weren't living in that house, I think, two months when I was diagnosed with an incurable disease. And in 18 months, I was at the point of death. During that time, the Lord revealed to me that he was disciplining me for my unfaithfulness with what he had entrusted to me. And praise God for 1 John 1, 9. I confessed, I repented, and God is good, and He forgives, and there was no condemnation, there was no shame. But after 18 months, I was still at the point of death. There was nothing else the doctors could do for me. I was off even the experimental medications that we were trying. I, my body systems were failing. I weighed 50 pounds less than I do here in front of you today. I was bones. I had these red bumps growing on my head and neck that looked like pencil erasers and they never went away. My fingernails even turned like this dark black and green. I was scary looking. And my wife and my family Family, my family was weeping, believing the time had come to say goodbye. And then I received a phone call from a brother here in Tampa in church. And he said, the Lord told him to call me and tell me he was going to heal me. And then right then and there on the phone, God healed me. And every symptom left my body. I didn't go into detail. I said my body systems were failing. It was obvious. Everything changed in an instant when he said, God told me to tell you he was going to heal you. Even the red bumps disappeared. Even my fingernails changed colors immediately. Hallelujah. Amen. Our God is merciful. And like Jonah, he gave me a second chance. And I wanted to get it right. And I felt compelled by his spirit to make a plan for how I would use the resources that he entrusted to me. So I started studying what the Bible says about money. And I counted 426 verses in the New Testament that provide direction for giving. Of the 426 verses, I was surprised that 281 of them are about using money to help poor, persecuted, suffering 
fellow believers. I was surprised. Based on the verse count, the primary reason for Christian giving was to help poor persecuted believers. And I was telling my friends this, and they were surprised. In hindsight, we shouldn't be surprised. Even the original biblical reason for our weekly Sunday collections, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, was to help poor persecuted believers in a suffering that were suffering in a foreign land. So I started looking for ways to help the persecuted. I contacted the leaders of the of the 20 largest denominations and the 150 largest churches in the U.S. And I told them, we want to support your programs to help the persecuted. Sadly, only two of the denominations and only three of the churches were actively helping the persecuted. I later learned, you know, American Christians are generous We give over $50 billion a year. But less than one half of 1% of it actually goes to help the persecuted. Even though it's the primary reason for Christian giving in so many of the contexts that we read about in the Bible. So we found other ways to help the persecuted. And as Jake said, we were meeting with some of our partners in Switzerland last week about projects and works to help them. But I realized there was something bigger that was wrong here. By the way, I'm not suggesting that 100% of what we give should go to help the persecuted. My point is that by not helping them, we've actually departed from the scriptures. One of the reasons why we've fallen away is the New Testament was written with the tears and blood of Christians at a time when the normal Christian life was defined by suffering and loss. But it's not our fault. But our lens for reading the scriptures is distorted by our comfort and security so that we're really not seeing so much of the biblical persecution context and the biblical application. Let me give you an example. We read the commands to be hospitable and we might think about having friends over for dinner. But the biblical application of hospitality is truly to help Christian refugees who are fleeing persecution and desperately need us to provide them with life-sustaining aid. I'm not saying we shouldn't have friends over for dinner. I'm Italian. My love language is cooking and feeding people. And I'm hoping that if I hang out here long enough, Jake will put me on the cooking team. (laughs) But what I am saying is, is we're grieving the Lord and disobeying him if we don't care for our brothers and sisters who are refugees. And this is critically relevant today. And as you learn, as we're talking, if you're like most, you're not seeing most of what's happening around the world to the body of Christ because the media is not our friend and they're not going to tell you. They want to keep these things in the darkness. But based on the latest reports, 245 million Christians are suffering severely 
I'm talking murder, torture, rape, false imprisonment, slavery. I'm talking the worst kinds of things that I won't even stand up here and talk about today from the platform. 245 million and the number is increasing by almost 20% annually. In the next two years, it'll be as many people as in the here in the United States that are suffering these levels of persecution. And so when we talk about hospitality, for example, in just the last couple of years, Islamists in the Middle East and in Africa have driven millions and millions and millions of Christians. Family, help me. These aren't statistics. Bear with me. Let's think about this. I didn't say thousands, tens, or hundreds of thousands. Millions and millions and millions have been driven from their homes. And as we're meeting this morning, they are cold, hungry, starving. Many have even died while waiting for the body of Christ to be hospitable. That's why I wrote Heirloom Love. To provide a biblical framework for understanding and responding to today's persecution. This morning, I just want to ask you to kind of travel with me across the New Testament. And let's look at some of the, the biblical passages that you're very familiar with. Peter, Paul, James, and John had a lot to say about how we're supposed to love one another. But let's revisit them this morning in their original persecution context. And as we do, we need to remember that Peter, Paul, and James were martyred. In fact, all of the apostles were brutally murdered except for John. And when John wrote the revelation, he referred to himself as a companion in the suffering because he had endured decades of horrible persecution. And as we go through these passages about love, we need to remember that in the first century, the Roman Empire had outlawed Christianity. And they were savagely killing many of the early church members. They did things like dip them in tar and tied them to poles and lit them on fire to use them as street lights. They took families like we are families and large groups of Christians, men, women, and children, and they fed them to lions in the many Roman Colosseums. And we need to remember Paul, our beloved Apostle Paul, who wrote nearly 30% of the New Testament. He said that he had been beaten and in prison so many times that he lost count. Except he did remember that he was tortured, having received the nearly fatal 39 lashes five different times. And he had been stoned and left for dead. And his letters that we love to read, he wrote those, almost all of them were to churches that were being persecuted. And then lastly, as we go through these verses on love, we need to remember that when Peter and James wrote their letters, they said they were writing them in the context of the refugee situation that originated in Acts chapter 8. And if you're like me, when I started on this journey and you're not careful, we can totally miss one of the most significant events 
in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8, the scripture says that when Stephen was martyred, a great persecution broke out. It's easy for us to meet the em- miss the emphasis of great. And it's really easy to miss the emphasis where it says all of the believers, all of the Christians were scattered. It's so easy to miss that by the time Stephen was martyred, there were ten to 20,000 adult believers in the church. You have 20,000 adults and their children. You have maybe 50,000 people that were forced to leave their homes with no notice and just the clothes on their backs. And they had no one to help them. Their families disowned them. The Romans wouldn't help them. The Jews wouldn't help them. All they had were other Christians who were willing to obey this command of Jesus to love one another sacrificially. Creekside family, that's the context. That's the biblical context for interpreting, understanding, and applying Jesus' command to love one another. When Jesus said, love one another just as I loved you, that was John 13 and 15. He was just hours from the cross. It was pretty clear what he meant by just as. He meant sacrificially. And now, I, 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 I have to read scripture multiple times for it to sink in. But and if you're like me, he made it really clear. He didn't leave it to us just to conclude he meant sacrificially. In John 15, he said, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. He was telling us to lay down our lives for one another. And even then, if we didn't get it, John in his letter said it. He said, we know Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's be honest. He's talking about a love here that in our Western American context is really hard for us to grasp. It's even hard for us to see the reason why. When a church's worldview is framed by comfort and security, this command to radical love just doesn't make sense. But to Jesus' followers who understand that we are one body, members one another and responsible for bearing the burdens of 245 million other Christians who are suffering today, these commands make total sense. It's real important here, just to pause for a moment. Jesus said we're to love and care for all people. Our God is love, and he said we're to love and care for all people. That's really important to just get that point across. But also, he was also really clear that his brothers and sisters are a priority. And the Apostle Paul affirmed this when he said in Galatians 6.10, he said, let us do good to all people. But then he said, especially for those who belong to the family of believers. People like to ask, well, why are Jesus' needy brothers and sisters any different than helping other needy people who aren't Christians? And I believe the answer to this question is the most important thing that I have to share with you today. 
Before Saul became Paul, he was on his way to persecute, to murder, to imprison Christians. When he was blinded by a great light and that voice from heaven said, What? You could probably repeat it with me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus repeated it. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. You see, this passage teaches us when people persecute Christians, they're really persecuting who? Help me. Jesus, right? That's not so hard for us to understand. But where it starts to get a little bit more difficult, but really important that we understand, is when we care for the persecuted. We're really caring for who? For Jesus. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 25, he said, when you did it to one of the least, and he's talking about, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was cold, you naked, you clothed me, you cared for me. When you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it to who? Me. Me. Did you see, do you notice, he didn't even say you did it for me. He said you did it to me. We've got to let that sink in when we care for the persecuted. We are caring for the one who left his father's side in glory and came and was nailed to the cross and died for me and for you. And when we care for the persecuted, that's who we are caring for. But where it really gets difficult to understand is when we don't care for the persecuted. We're really not caring. Or as one translation says, we're refusing to care for Jesus. And that's why he also said in Matthew 25, he said, I tell you the truth. He said, when you refuse to care, help me out with the slides here. Next slide. He said, when you, um, I, I lost my slide. I'm sorry. But he said, when you refused to care for these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you are refusing to care for me. New Living Translation. We've got to let that sink in. It's our responsibility. How we respond to the suffering body of Christ is really how we're treating Jesus. been a journey for me. I've been on the, you're hearing these things maybe for the first time. It's taken 10 years for these things to sink in and start to affect change in my life and my worldview and my priorities. So when you talk about priorities, the apostles understood these things. Peter said, I think one of the most amazing things in the New Testament for believers today, then and today because he understood our response to the suffering body of Christ is our response to Christ. He said, 1 Peter 4, he said, above all things have fervent love for one another. And when he said above all things, it's pretty obvious what he meant. He said this should be your highest priority. Our highest priority, he's saying, should be to care for suffering brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Now, I know that there's some of you out there that are probably thinking, Brother Dominic, how do you know he's talking about caring for the persecuted? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Let me give you four reasons why. The first reason is he wrote his letter when Nero was the emperor. And he was killing and torturing Christians in, in, in record numbers. The second reason is Peter himself said that he wrote his letter in the refugee context that originated in Acts chapter 8. And then when you read it in context, it's like jumps off the page at you. Peter talks about love and persecution in every chapter of his letter. And if you're still not convinced, as maybe I wasn't, Peter himself gave us the application starting in the following verse, verse 9, where he said, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. He's telling us to care for the refugees and not complain and do whatever it takes above all things. And it wasn't just Peter. Paul understood this. So Paul wrote Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, right? And in chapters 8, 2nd Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, Paul wrote what is probably the most comprehensive teaching and example of Christian giving in the entire Bible. And he wrote it entirely to raise money to help other believers who were in a foreign land and suffering and persecuted. That was the purpose of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But if you would, go back to that passage with me. And you may remember we have the Macedonians. The marvelous Macedonians. They weren't just poor. They were beyond poor. They were beyond dirt poor. Scripture says they were destitute. They had nothing. They didn't know how they were going to survive. But Scripture says, and you can miss this if you're not careful, and especially miss the context of giving to help poor persecuted Christians in a foreign land. Scripture says that these, these destitute people were begging. They were begging to give an offering. Now come on. When's the last time you heard of people that were really, really, really poor begging to give an offering to help other really poor people who they didn't even know in a foreign country? What was the Apostle Paul teaching the church? And what were the Macedonians thinking? Or maybe the better question is, is what did they know that perhaps the Lord wants us to know this morning? I had an experience that I don't believe I'll ever forget that helped me to understand why they were begging. Not that long ago, and this actually, the situation is still true today. In Nigeria... There is plus or minus close to a million Christians who have been driven from their homes and farms by Islamic groups. They're, they don't call them refugees because they haven't left the country. They call them IDPs, internally displaced people. And they don't have access to food and clean water. And the weaker ones have been dying. Children have been dying. And I was praying, fervently praying, Lord, how much should we give to help them? And as I was praying, I believe the Lord whispered something into my heart that I hope I never forget. I heard him as clear as day say, that's me. I'm hungry and I'm waiting and watching to see who loves me and will give me something to eat. That's biblical, based on what I just shared with you out of Matthew 25. 
And that rocked my world. I started weeping and weeping as I thought about his love and his patience and his kindness and that he died to save me from my sins. And I would have begged if necessary. I would have gladly begged if that's what it would have taken to give these brothers and sisters something to eat. Creekside family, that is this context and the spirit of most of this Christian giving in the Bible that we read. So, I, I, I told you I just wanted to share some highlights from Peter, Paul, leaves James and John. And, and I said that more for me than you to keep track of where I am. But, um, James. James also wrote his letter in the context of that refugee situation that originated in Acts chapter 8. Except unlike Peter, James was writing to believers in the church who had means, were able to help, but they weren't, James chapter 2, James 5, they weren't willing to provide food and clothing and they weren't even willing to care for, you know, the widows and orphans that we read about in James 1.28? Those widows and orphans were most likely widows and orphans because their fathers and husbands were martyred and they weren't caring for them. And James didn't pull any punches. He told them that they were foolish and deluded to believe that they could have actually received the love of God because they weren't willing to care for their brothers and sisters. And then there was John. John is an interesting book. John was the last one to write in the Bible. Yeah, Revelation and then 1 John was the last. His epistle, 1 John, he wrote it because false teachers had perverted what it meant to be a true Christian. And so in 95 AD, long after everyone else, he wrote this letter on authentic Christianity. Now think about this. John was uniquely qualified to write it because he was the last living person who had walked and talked with Jesus. And he wrote this letter that was so radical compared to what Christianity had become that he had to remind his readers why he was qualified to make such bold and even seemingly contradictory statements about Christianity. And he penned 104 verses. And out of those 104 verses, 40% of them are about what he calls real love. But they were so radical that he had to start his letter in the first five verses. And I paraphrase. He said, listen to me. I walked with him. I talked with him. I heard him. I even touched him. And what I'm telling you is exactly what I heard from him. That's how he started his letter. The first five verses. Because it was so radical. And you'll know why in just a second. Because I'm going to ask you to read with me just three of those 104 verses. First is, so he talked about what he called, one translation calls real love. And he said, we know what real love, read this with me, please. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Okay, radical, real love. Next verse. 
And then he said, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? So James said the same thing. He said, you can't have all these suffering brothers and sisters around you and tell me you've received the love of God. So John is saying the same thing as James. But John took it another step. And it's good thing that John said it because I don't think anybody else on the earth could get away with saying what he said in this next verse because it was so radical. We'd accuse him of being judgmental and, and, and so many other things because he said, we can tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Whoa, John. <laughs> that verse won't preach very far in very many places, but it was John who said it. Now, John is saying we can tell who the real Christians are because of their love, their sacrificial love for their suffering brothers and sisters. Now, just to be clear, I know you know this, but it's just always good to say it and it feels good in my soul. We know that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. John is not saying the way to get saved is by helping anybody, let alone suffering believers. What he's saying is, gee, well, Jesus said it, we could tell by their fruit. John is saying that the fruit of somebody who's been born again has the love of God in their soul, is their love for God's other children. And you know, it wasn't just John. Jesus essentially said the same thing in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, in that great and glorious passage where it says, Jesus is coming back in the fullness of his Father's glory. We can't comprehend that, right? And he's going to take his throne. This is the pinnacle moment in all of global universe history. And he says the angels are going to go out, right? And they're going to do what? They're going to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the real from the false, the real deal, right? And how are they going to do it? How are they going to identify them? According to Jesus, he said, because they cared for the least and the last of my brothers and sisters, and in doing so, they did it to me. That's how Jesus said the angels are going to separate the real from the false. So John was just telling us really what Jesus said. It's so important that we just grasp this. And if you're like where I was when I first heard this message, it took some time to sink in, but it was it was it was worth it. I want to shift gears with you for a moment though and 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 talk talk to you a little bit about my journey on this. So, when I started on this path, I thought the persecuted church needs us and I've got work to do to help them, right? You know, I didn't realize how much we need them. The more I learn about our brothers and sisters who live in the fire of persecution, the more convicted I am by their faith and their love, even their love for those who are persecuting them. It makes me feel lukewarm. We can learn from them about what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. We can gain so much from them. 
Uh, just uh, one story, that, a couple, actually a couple stories. It's just... I have a co-author, and he's actually a, he's a famous writer. He's done a lot of writing for Dobson, for Blackaby, for Lucado, and a number of famous people. But he had a tragedy in his life before he met me. And for six years, he was clinically depressed. And he was on medication just to get him out of bed. And medication just to go back to sleep at night. And I didn't know that when I signed a contract with him, but it became evident fairly soon after. And by the way, I have his permission to share this story. And so the way we the way we kind of conquered the book or divide and conquer and wrote the book is I did all the teaching in the book and he wrote all the stories in the book. My background's accounting and finance and if you think I, I, I can put people to sleep now, you should just read what I write without the help of a professional editor, right? But on the other hand, Brian is compassionate and he was able to do the research because in the book we have a lot of scriptures but then we have the 21st century application of what's really happening around the body of Christ today and he wrote those stories in a real riveting way. But the point being is as he started researching what was happening around the world to the body of Christ and the compassion was aroused in him, he was praying for them, God healed him of his depression. Amen. So we can learn a lot from them. Another story. Last year in Nigeria... There were 110 middle school girls who were kidnapped by what I believe is the most dreaded, awful terrorist group on the planet, a group called Boko Haram. They kidnapped 110 middle school girls, and within two weeks, 109 of them were released because they were Muslims. One girl, one 15-year-old girl, remained in captivity, and her name is Leah. And of those girls who were released, a number of them were Leah's friends, and they went to Leah's mother and father, weeping, crying, and saying, they would have released Leah. All she had to do was say no to Jesus, and we begged her to change her faith, and she wouldn't. (sighs) Leah was only 15 years old, but she knew, she knew, she lived in that country, that they would either immediately kill her, or even worse, she'd spend the rest of her life as a slave in horror to these men. And she said yes to Jesus. Hallelujah. Leah wrote a note, and she gave it to one of those girls to give to her mother. And I want to just kind of read it to you, very short. My mother, you should not be disturbed. I know it's not easy missing me, but I want to assure you that my God is showing himself mighty in my trying moments. I remember your words to me in our morning devotions that God is very close to people in pain. I am witnessing this now. I am confident that one day I shall see your face again, if not here, then at the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm on the board of a group in Washington, D.C., and we lobby to help the persecuted. And and we brought in uh, Leah's mother and several other Christians who had endured persecution to testify on the Hill and and, and in the executive office. And, And Leah's mother was so cute and so sweet. She had never been on a plane she had never rode on, been on an escalator or in an elevator, but she came this far just to tell our leaders on the hill what was really happening in Nigeria. And last week, Vice President Pence 
called the vice president of Nigeria and they met to talk about Leah's case and what's happening to the persecuted in Nigeria. So we're hopeful we're making progress. Our youth need to hear about Leah and pray for her. It'll strengthen them in their own conviction and resolve to stand firm when the tempter comes their way and tempts them in different other ways to change, to deny their faith. Sometimes you have to touch something that's hot before you can really tell if something else is cold or just lukewarm. I didn't realize that I had become lukewarm until I was in the Middle East visiting our brothers and sisters who live in the fire of persecution. And I spent one day with a brother that before I arrived, about two to three weeks before I arrived, he was openly preaching. And this is in a closed country where it's dangerous to death to preach the gospel. And he was preaching the gospel openly in the square. And as he said, until some men with beards and machine guns attacked him and left him for dead. And God miraculously healed him. And you know what he was doing when I got there a couple weeks later? He was preaching the gospel in that same town square. And the American in me just wanted to say, what's wrong with you? What are you thinking? But I'm glad I didn't. I just zipped it. By the way, I was probably too scared. I was really nervous hanging out with him that day. (laughs) He invited me to his home for lunch with his wife and children. And they're sitting around the table and they're talking about things that are life and death risk and the things that they're doing just because they love and obey Jesus. I felt about this big. And I went home and then I got a call that a brother in his church had been clubbed to death in his driveway in front of his family. And another brother had been shot in the back of his head just because they believe what we we believe. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, and the Holy Spirit whispers to me, Dominic, you are lukewarm. And as I thought about it, it wasn't too hard to figure out. I had to think about these brothers, they're hot. I'm not. What's wrong here? And I confessed, I repented, praise God for 1 John 1, 9. This isn't a conversation about shame or blame or condemnation. It's about the goodness of God and where he wants to take us on the journey. Right? You know, the world is watching to see if we really do love our brothers and sisters. And that's why Jesus, after he said love one another five times, he prayed, John 17, 21, verse 21, 24, he prayed in the garden and he prayed that we would what? That we would be one, that we would be in unity and we'd be unified in our love. But why? He said, so that the world will know and the world will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, when we love our brothers and sisters, we demonstrate God is love and that he sent his one and only son. 
And we see this played out. Jake and I were meeting last week with a group and they're doing amazing work and they're doing some work to help suffering believers and Christian refugees in very dangerous countries where not only are the Christians persecuted, but even the moderate Muslims because they don't believe in killing, they are persecuted and driven from their homes. And we're working with this group in Switzerland and they're providing aid, they're providing food to the Christians and do you know what those crazy brothers and sisters of ours are doing? They're sharing it with their Muslim neighbor refugees. And you know, the conversation goes something like this. Hey, thank you. Where'd you get that? Our brothers and sisters in other countries sent it to us. Well, why'd they do that? Because our God is love and they love us. Okay, well, why? Our people are the ones killing you. Why are you sharing it with us? Because our God is love and we love you. And that has opened the door for so many. Literally record numbers. Record numbers of Muslims to be saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amazing things are happening. So, the book Heirloom Love, shifting gears on you here as I kind of bring it in for a wrap-up. The book Heirloom Love, the power of the book is half the book is Scripture. It's the living and active Word of God. And the Lord is using it to radically fan into flames churches across the United States to be caring for the persecuted. And because it is so much Scripture, it was a perfect book to create a small group study from. And so now it's a six-week small group study, and there are groups across the country that are going through that, and that are being changed, that are being revived, and great things are happening. And so I am very thankful because I live here in Tampa that Jake has asked me if I would facilitate the group. And so that's what we're going to be doing starting July 10th. And so there are copies of the book in the back. And please, uh, please take a copy if you'd like to go through the small group study. And... Um, and on July 10th, our first meeting, we will actually start with week one, meaning if you participate, please complete week one before you arrive on July 10th so that we can, we can share our experience together. Thank you. Thank you very much. Come on down here, Dominic, if you could. The band's going to come up and set up for a closing song. So you have not because you ask not is what um, we've, we've always learned through scripture. I, I, look at, I look at you and I'm like, I would have never thought uh, I would be able to, we'd be able to have you come facilitate this, uh, this course for six weeks. Again, I think you're being um, humble when you talk about um, in America, this book is, being, is going through its small group studies. Uh, when when uh, I was in Switzerland last week, let's, let's happen to look on a bookshelf and there was your book, you know. And so uh, this is all over the world. And, and I didn't get a chance to hear you in Zurich last Sunday. You spoke there. And, and we're blessed to be able to have Dominic come in here and lead us in this study. Now, here's what I was thinking earlier was, if you'd have asked me a few weeks ago, how would you plan this day? Well, I'd probably at the end... Um, pray over you, call some elders up, pray over you. But the reality is you've come in here to show us what it means for us to pray for ourselves, to be able to get this message, to be able to digest it and what it means. And 
it's not hard to see how people are walking away from depression, walking away with a different perspective and priorities when you hear these stories. We heard one story after the next over there about, and this person lost everyone in their family, out of the blue, no one, there was no even thought that, uh, that, that um, some ISIS group had come into their village and all of a sudden they came in and dragged everyone out into a morning, killed everyone, and one son got away. And what did that one son do? The one son grew up to be a pastor to go back to that village and win those people to Christ. These, these are the stories just unfold one after the next. The, the place you referred to that was getting aid in the Swiss agency had sent some food over to help in, in Aleppo, which is in Syria, which is a, once, was, once was a beautiful, thriving city, has now been reduced to rubble. Uh, Doctors Without Borders pulled out. The United Nations pulled out their peacekeeping force. Nobody would go in there. And this Swiss agency that you work with that I got to meet sent some food over. How many people did they feed? Well, so they provided aid. The the church there was about 1,500 strong. And through those 1,500 people, they distributed aid to 350,000 other people outside the church that got to hear the gospel, perhaps for the first time. This is what's happening to our... This is why it's so hard to... You know, I come back and, and I could... It's, uh, you get perspective and priorities on things to look at. I mean, um, thank God we're who we are as Creekside. You know, you don't hear about a building campaign even though we're building a church because we really do trust the Lord. You don't hear about us twisting your arm to say, we want you to be a member of this church because there's so many churches, churches probably even better than we are. But God has called together a collective in here of men and women who I think could start six or eight churches on their own. And what is our calling? What has he called us here for, us ordinary people at Creekside? Who knows if it isn't to help a people in the middle of Nigeria? Who knows if... if what we look at in some of our teenagers here when we shyfully and bashfully look at you and say, I know we don't have much to offer, but may we be a church that one day send you to a place to come back and tell the story to us, us complacent people and Christians that be able to, to reawaken who we are. I don't know about you, but I've always looked for a way that God would spark something in my life to be able to bring that faith back to reality. To be able to bring me for a hunger to pray and a hunger to think about people who are hurting. And sometimes it comes from voices in the middle of refugee camps. Mm. It comes from the hospitals and it comes from those who are weeping. And for my own American arrogance to think, I thought, what could we do for them? The reality is the six-week study we're going to have is probably what they could do for us and the stories. And so we're grateful and thank you. Let's pray. And we'll continue to worship one more song. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this story that's still unfolding. The Father, in the midst of horror, in the midst of, of um, what the world looks to and, and we see in persecution, Father, there is a story that is to be beheld and that is our part of the story. It's our stepping forward to see what we can do and how we can pray. But it is also our part of the story to lend an ear to hear what stories can be told to us. That we can hear from a middle school girl who said no to Islamic terrorists while she's looking down the barrel of a gun to say, I shall not leave and I shall not forsake you. Father, may we learn from stories like that. May we see how blessed we are in this land to know that there are many other lands who do not share this blessing. Father, thank you for Dominic's mission 
to bring the stories to brothers and sisters on this shore. Father, we ask you just to to guide him in every bit of ministry, but guide us as Creekside to find our role, to find a mission that our small church can have to make an impact. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.